Welcome to the Plane Crash Diaries, the series that investigates historical and contemporary commercial aviation accidents. I'm your pilot and host, Desmond Latham. As a licensed aviator, the level of training proficiency required to aviate safely is extensive and continuous. So too the knowledge gained from incidents and accidents. It's a truth that in something so unusual as taking a heavier-than-air machine into the atmosphere creates dangers. The laws of physics are profoundly constant and unforgiving. This series will cover commercial aviation accidents that have occurred throughout the more than 100 years of powered flight. Aviation has been characterized both by remarkable human endeavors like record-breaking non-stop flights across the Atlantic and down the length of Africa, but also terrible accidents. We will investigate miraculous escapes where men and women fall thousands of feet without a parachute and live, and others where a single passenger survived after everyone else on board died. This has happened more often than you think. For example, 14-year-old Bahia Bakari was found floating in the Indian Ocean after a crash killed 150 people on board a Yemen Airbus in 2009. I will also explain how each accident led to changes in airline safety, ultimately leading to today's incredibly safe aviation industry. What is fascinating is how aviation and 20th century history are intertwined, how technology, economic development and flying correlate. At times, I'll be using air traffic control and other recordings if they exist, and you'll find images, graphics and other explanations on my site, planecrashdiaries.com. So, drop those tray tables and footrests, recline your seat, switch on your electronic devices and pull down the window blinds for the first in our Plane Crash Diaries series. The first recognized commercial aviation accident took place in July 1919, almost exactly 100 years ago, and it involved a dirigible or airship. Inevitably, there will be a debate over the selection of this, but it's generally recognized as the first. You'll know those heavier-than-air machines which were made famous by the Zeppelins, which looked like huge cigar-shaped balloons. In early dirigibles, the gas used was hydrogen due to its high lifting capacity and ready availability, but it's also extremely dangerous and unstable. Early airships featured a metal or wooden frame inside which bags or large balloons of hydrogen were placed. They were large and built with ships in mind and included huge engines and in some cases dozens of crew and carried a cargo payload along with passengers typically housed in one or more gondolas suspended below the envelope. There are three types of dirigible, non-rigid, semi-rigid and rigid. Non-rigid airships are called blimps and rely on internal pressure to maintain their shape and can still be seen around today flying over sports stadiums in the USA for example. Semi-rigid airships maintain the envelope shape by internal pressure but have some form of supporting structure, such as a fixed keel. Rigid airships have an outer structural framework that maintains the shape and carries all structural loads while the lifting gas is kept in one or more internal gas bag or cells. So, rigid airships were first flown by Count Zeppelin in Germany, and the vast majority of rigid airships built were manufactured by the firm he founded. As a result, rigid airships are called Zeppelins. Airships were the first aircraft capable of controlled powered flight and were most commonly used before the 1940s, but a series of accidents and the rise of the fixed-wing aeroplane put paid to their growth. The first really serious commercial aviation accident which led directly to safety standards being imposed took place in Chicago, USA in 1919 and involved a Goodyear airship. 
It also led to many people on the ground dying, and that's what really prompted a change in operating procedures and new laws. The crash led to rules about overflying cities, which we still use today, 100 years later. So, let's hear what happened. The Wingfoot Air Express was operated by Goodyear Tire and Rubber Company in 1919. The company continues to operate dirigibles in the United States with the blimps hovering over golf courses and sports events, as I've mentioned. In the summer of 1919, the Goodyear Tire and Rubber Company's Wingfoot Express airship was the talk of the town as it flew training runs between the south side and the famous Loop area of downtown Chicago. The ship attracted interest from airship fans, but also from the U.S. military and business. For example, Roger J. Adams of the Adams Aerial Transportation Company told the Chicago Daily News that Chicago will be the blimpopolis of the Western world. Thousands of fans, reporters and photographers lined the parks and the streets just to catch a view of the Wingfoot as it flew overhead. But... On its final trip on that fateful day, 21st of July 1919, the Wingfoot Air Express airship took off in the late afternoon in good weather from Grant Park en route to White City Amusement Park in the city of Chicago. Five people were on board, two passengers and three crew. In the early days of commercial aviation, it wasn't unusual to have more crew on board than passengers. One of the passengers was a photographer by the name of Milton Horton, who asked the ship's pilot, Jack Boitner, to divert from the flight plan so he could get some aerial shots of the Chicago Loop in the central business district. Boitner complied, even though the airship's navigation had never been tested over the city. That was his first mistake. To deviate from the flight plan without real justification, much of what happened next may have been avoided. Somehow, the dirigible caught fire just before five in the afternoon while cruising at an altitude of 1,200 feet right overhead the Chicago Loop, possibly the worst place it could be. We can only imagine the panic on board as the blaze grew quickly, fanned by the highly flammable hydrogen gas. At first, the crew tried to head towards open ground, desperately trying to extinguish the blaze at the same time. When they realized all was lost, pilot Jack Boitner and the chief mechanic Harry Wacker donned parachutes and jumped to safety, leaving the others behind. So much for the honor code where captains are supposed to go down with their airships. A second mechanic called Henry Weaver pulled on his parachute, but as he jumped it caught fire and he plunged to his doom. The two passengers were now left to do what they could. Luckily, they also had parachutes. Unlike the pilot and engineer, however, they were not trained in their use and it took them far longer to strap in. White City Amusement Park publicity agent Earl H. Davenport struggled into his parachute, but as he jumped, the open canopy snagged on the airship rigging and he was left dangling 50 feet below the burning dirigible as it slipped from the sky. He would not survive. The fifth man, Chicago Daily News photographer Milton Norton, was more fortunate, at least initially. He managed to jump clear, but his parachute opened a second too late and he hit the ground hard, breaking both his legs. He died in hospital a week later. This disaster was only just beginning. The blazing dirigible was descending at high speed straight towards the Illinois Trust and Savings Bank building at the corner of LaSalle Street and Jackson Boulevard. Unaware of the danger they faced, 150 employees of the bank were closing up after the day's business. 
there were no customers present. The bookkeepers and clerks were hunched over their papers, totting up the day's takings and losses in the cubicles around the building. The Illinois Trust and Savings Bank building was very modern, featuring a large glass skylight over the main banking hall, which was designed to improve working conditions. More than one bank employee would report seeing a flash of light that they attributed to a photographer's flashbulb. Then, a second later, a terrifying crash. Here's how the Chicago Tribune described it. A shadow passed over the marble rotunda, according to witnesses. The blimp broke through the iron supports and glass overhead and plummeted to the floor, carrying the heavy rotary engines and two fuel tanks. Instantly, the tanks exploded reports the Tribune, scattering a wave of flaming gasoline over the workers for a radius of 50 feet. A panic ensued. For the employees, there was no escape. The area beneath the skylight was caged for security reasons and only had two doors. Men and girls with clothing flaming fought their way through the exits, the Tribune reports. One bank employee ran out of his office and was immediately knocked off his feet by an explosion. I got up and someone ran into me screaming, Oh my God, it's raining hell. The screams were indescribable. Also dead, poor Earl H. Davenport, who was dangling from under the dirigible. Imagine his terror as he was utterly helpless and could not escape, only to crash through the skylight, followed by the blimp. Thirteen people died, twenty-seven were injured in this accident. City authorities investigated and adopted a new set of rules for aviation over the city centre, but they did not ban flights outright. They also ordered the closure of the Grant Park airstrip and the creation of the new Chicago Air Park further away. Miraculously, the Illinois Trust and Savings Bank opened for business the day after the disaster, publishing a remarkable advert in the Chicago Tribune which read, A balloon fell through the skylight, injuring and killing several of our employees. The tellers' cages and other facilities were not affected. The physical damage will be repaired so that the bank will be able to transact business today. That was on the 22nd July. The accident happened on the evening of the 21st. It could be called callous, but you must consider the period. They really were very different back in that day. Modern companies would shut that branch pending their lengthy investigation, not in 1919. But the world had just experienced World War I, after all. What was a tiny little air crash compared to that? However, there was another reason the crash was quickly replaced on the front pages of the papers, as we'll hear in a moment. The Illinois state attorney wasted no time and launched an investigation, arresting 17 Goodyear employees. One of the first to be arrested was pilot Jack Boitner, who did not go down with his burning ship, as we heard. Boitner survived after his parachute deployed, and he landed safely on the top of an apartment block not far from the Illinois bank, then watched as his airship plunged through the skylight. Not exactly the most honorable man of the accident, and his name was forever besmirched by his actions. Surprisingly, however, that's where everything ended when it came to personal accountability. No one was ever charged or tried, and no cause was ever found. The captain was released. The owners were forgiven. Stories in newspapers suggested that static caused the highly flammable hydrogen gas to ignite. The story disappeared almost immediately, however. 
You think this kind of tale would have led to multiple editions and public discussions at length, but it didn't, because at the same time, you see, America was facing a serious outbreak of one of its worst cases of racial violence ever to hit big cities. For example, riots had broken out in New York and would spread to Chicago within a week. As pent-up issues exploded on the streets in the wake of World War I, the Wingfoot Air Express disaster at the Illinois Trust and Savings Bank was relegated to an historical footnote. Authorities, though, closed Grant Park and instituted new rules restricting overflights of a city centre. As we'll hear over the course of these podcasts, the overflight rules would change significantly to what we now have, which is a total ban over most CBDs for most aircraft, and a minimum altitude of 1,000 feet over a built-up area, like suburbs. Yet this incident kick-started the restrictions because of the shocking events that unfolded on July 21st, 1919. So, one of the very first commercial aviation accidents led directly to one of the very first rules about minimum altitude permissible when overflying towns and cities. These rules are still in force today. There's also a silver lining to this tale. The new airport, which I've said replaced Grand Park, was Chicago Air Park, which remains in operation in the 21st century. Chicago Air Park was renamed Midway International Airport after the Second World War, and that was to commemorate the exploits of the American Air Force and Navy at the Battle of Midway in 1942, and remains Chicago's second largest airport after O'Hare International, serving 23 million passengers a year. While airships are over 120 years old, they remain rare in the air. The Goodyear blimp continues to fly around America, but its operators need to get special FAA clearance to fly over the Chicago Loop. Still, the airship dream remains alive in Chicago, but the reality was the city was in the middle of the USA. Airships are better at long-distance coast-to-coast travel, largely because they are an ordeal to dock and cost a lot of money to operate. Even a trip of 1,000 miles, say, from Chicago to New York City wasn't long enough to justify the effort, and most people preferred the train. It was comfortable and, in their minds, safer. When the Zeppelin Company ran its own commercial air service between 1928 and 1937, it only stopped in Germany, New Jersey, Brazil and Argentina. Zeppelins were mostly used to carry urgent mail and business travelers who had to be in a different country quickly. The dirigible or blimp market is beginning to show signs of life once more, but now helium is the gas of choice as it's an inert gas and not prone to exploding. Yet that first major disaster involving a commercial heavier-than-air aircraft remains as a warning to all airship designers. Every week, I'll be taking a look at aviation innovations, and in this section called A Brief History, we'll start with air traffic control. The first ATC, or Air Traffic Controlled Service, was introduced at Croydon Airport in London in 1920. And I recently purchased a book called Conquering the Air by Archibald Williams, published in 1926, which describes air traffic control procedures in great detail. And traffic officer was installed in a 20-foot high tower at the airport along with a radio operator. A map on the wall was made of cork, allowing the officer to track aircraft by means of pins with tiny flags attached. And because of the rudimentary navigation in the air, pilots frequently found themselves lost, particularly in Europe's foggy weather. 
Williams describes a scene where a pilot radios Mayday, Mayday, the international appeal for guidance. Of course, now Mayday is only used in an extreme emergency. The air traffic controller then keeps talking to the pilot, who is also being tracked by a second and sometimes a third radio on the ground. By testing the strength of the signal, these ATCs would then triangulate the distances and eventually figure out where the plane was. As with today's radar technique, the pilot would be given a bearing to turn towards and a rough idea of distance. Though the machine may be a hundred miles away, the error seldom exceeds a mile, says Williams. Croydon also instituted its system of diverting flights to airports where fog had lifted, and Williams remarks, By means of wireless, an airplane has on several occasions been guided all the way between Brussels and Croydon without the pilot having seen the earth at all en route. The ATC is also responsible for the weather report along the route and in the region. There's a close link between the United States of America and air traffic control development. It was the fastest growing aviation sector in the world, and by the late 1920s, the number of aircraft zooming about the sky meant more near-miss incidents were being reported. As the planes became a bit more sophisticated in the 20s, postal route planes flew across the nation using bonfires as navigational aids, creating the nation's first airways. The late 1920s saw America's first air traffic controllers waving flags to instruct pilots when to land and take off. The Air Commerce Act of 1926 was the first legislation there concerning air traffic rules and in fact in the world. But it was in 1929 that the first air traffic controller in the USA was hired at St. Louis in Missouri. His name? Archie W. League. He used tools a little more rustic than those of Croydon. He merely carried two flags, one red for hold and a checkered flag for go. His summer office was a folding chair under an umbrella and his two flags would be stowed in a wheelbarrow while he had a notepad and pencil to jot down times and plain details. The air traffic control profession that Archie League launched quickly developed and became more sophisticated in the US. In 1930, for example, Cleveland Municipal Airport established a radio-equipped airport control tower, and by 1935, there were 20 cities which had followed Cleveland's lead and, of course, followed Croydon's lead. Archie was eventually formally inducted into the Federal Service in 1937. He became the Federal Aviation Authority's Air Traffic Services Director and retired as an Assistant Administrator in 1973. But it took a mid-air collision in 1956 over the Grand Canyon between a TWA Super Constellation and a United Airlines DC-7 that was the catalyst that led to modernizing the air traffic control system. Then, in 1958, a United Airlines flight and a military jet collided near Las Vegas, killing 49 people, which led to an outcry and eventually Congress passed the Federal Aviation Act of 1958, which dissolved the Civil Aviation Authority and created the Federal Aviation Authority. I'll have more about ATC history in future podcasts. Next week, we'll jump forward by almost a century and investigate the Air France crash of June 2009. That's where an Airbus A330 crashed into the Atlantic Ocean, killing all 228 passengers and crew on board. The report blamed ice crystals, which blocked the all-important pitot tubes, after which the air crew reacted incorrectly. That led to the -the state-of-the-art aircraft stalling and plunging to the ocean. More about that next week. Please rate the podcast on iTunes and you can send me an email via the website planecrashdiaries.com or direct message me on Twitter at Des Latham. So until then, aviate, navigate, communicate safely. Bye.